1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from
0: HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we have a listener request we have gotten a few times before, most recently from Maggie back in April, and that is the London Match Girls Strike of 1888. This is an event I had heard of. Had you heard of it? Oh, yes. Yes. I knew it was really important to labor rights history in Britain. Yeah. That was the sum of my knowledge. Uh, mine doesn't go far past that, right? Uh, my knowledge was so limited that I thought these girls who were striking were girls who sold matches.
1: That's because of the sad Christmas song, I would bet.
0: Well, I, I know it more <laughs> as, a, as a sad Christmas story with sad illustrations. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh but it's not. Nope, it's not about girls who sold matches. No. And most of them uh not some of them are women, some of them are girls. They're girls who they made the matches. So that's just to clear up the first misconception. Uh and this is not quite as jovial a story as maybe the tone of what we just
1: said might make it sound like. Yeah. Uh it's got some parts in it that are hard. As much of history does, sadly. Yep. So, we're gonna talk first a little bit about life in East London, because even today the name, the East End still conjures images of poverty. And writer Charles Dickens died uh, a little m- more than a decade, slightly less than two decades before the event that we're talking about today took place. But he was one of the most famous writers to write about the Victorian East End of London. So think about Oliver Twist and you will kind of get where we're going with this. Uh, the East End as a term for this neighborhood was actually coined near the end of the 1700s. But it was really in the 1880s that it started to take on a more insulting connotation synonymous with poverty poverty overcrowding illness and crime. In
0: 1889, a book called Labor and Life of the People basically surveyed and mapped East and South London, chronicling the incidents of poverty and how people lived in these neighborhoods. And from a review of the book is this quote, quote, much has been written of late about the squalor and vice of East London and of that seemingly vast horde, the army of the unemployed, most realistic pictures of starving mothers and naked children have filled the newspapers. And that's the end of the quote. So even though the book itself reported that a lot of people living in East and South London had their basic day-to-day needs met, like they had enough to eat as kind of a minimum standard, the area was notorious, even at this time that we're talking about, for being
1: uh, synonymous with poverty and crime. And this so-called outcast London didn't have its reputation simply because of the income level and living conditions of its residents. Many of the area's residents were immigrants and minorities regarded with a certain degree of suspicion and disdain by much of middle and upper class Britain. Another culprit for the East End's reputation was the industries that were headquartered
0: there. Many of them were so-called sweating industries. So the types of places where people worked long hours in windowless rooms doing work that was sometimes dangerous and often looked down upon by the people in most, in the more affluent occupations. One of these employers was Bryant and May Match Company. Most matchmakers at this time were young women, and in the hierarchy of working poor in Victorian England, these so-called match girls tended to be some of the lowest of the low. People really looked down on girls who made matches and women who made matches. In
1: 1888, the Bryant and May match factories came to the attention of Annie Besant. Uh, most American pronunciations of this seem to rhyme with Crescent, so we're going with that. Uh, she was a socialist feminist reformer who, by this point, had been advocating for social change for decades. In the 1870s, she had edited The National Reformer, along with Charles Bradlaugh, which advocated for things like labor rights, women's suffrage, and birth control. And that last one got the two of them tried for obscenity, but they were acquitted. Besant was also a member of the Fabian Society,
0: founded in 1884. The Fabian Society is a socialist organization established to advocate nonviolent political change, in particular to try to establish Great Britain as a democratic socialist state. Some of the other famous members in the Fabian Society's early years were George Bernard Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, and Beatrice and Sidney Webb. The Fabian Fabian Society helped form Britain's Labor Party in 1906 and has continued to be affiliated with the Labor Party since then.
1: On June 15th, the Bryant and May Match Factory was discussed at a Fabian Society meeting following a presentation by trade unionist Clementina Black. The topic of the conversation was the fact that shareholders in the factory received a dividend of more than 20%. However, the employees who made its boxes were paid two and a quarter pence or pennies per gross for their work. So to catch folks up really briefly on British money at the time, there were 12 pence in a shilling and 20 shillings in a pound. So this was basically nothing. The members of the society pledged not to use Bryant and May matches or to buy any products from them. Bessett wanted to investigate this
0: a little further. So she went to the factory to talk to these workers herself They weren't, however, actually the same people that had been discussed at the meeting. Those people who were making the two and a quarter pence for every 144 boxes, those are people that worked at home, often with their whole families, making boxes as fast as possible. Besant met workers instead, leaving from their shift. These were people who did things in the factory itself, doing jobs like taking the matches off of the frames and putting them into their boxes. And the conditions that these people described to her were
1: pretty appalling. On June 23rd, 1888, she published the findings of her investigation in The Link, a journal for the servants of man. Some of Bryant and May's match girls were as young as eight years old. Many were immigrants from Ireland whose families had moved to London in the wake of the famine earlier in the century. In the summer, they started work at 6.30 in the morning and in the winter at 8 a.m. And either way, the workday ended at 6 p.m., although in other accounts, the days were often as long as 14 hours. I found a
0: lot of, of, of sources citing the 14-hour number, uh, which is a little longer than was described in this particular article that sparked this whole thing. Apart from these really long days, all of the work was done standing and the workers whose job was emptying the frames of their matches also had to run up and down flights of stairs every time they needed a new frame because they were only allowed one frame at a time in their working station. So this meant that they had to run up and down the stairs about three times an hour.
1: And they were running because all but a few married women were paid by the piece, not by the day or by the hour. So the more work they did, the more money they got paid. Because the pay for each unit was tiny, for example, three-quarter pence per gross for filling boxes of matches, they were really motivated to work as quickly as humanly possible. Because most of Bryant and May's products were Strike Anywhere matches, which, as their names
0: suggest, can be struck anywhere. This led to problems of your work spontaneously catching fire while you were handling strike-anywhere matches as fast as you
1: possibly could. But the employees at the factory didn't get to take home all of their minimal pay. There was this long list of -of out-of-pocket costs in which the workers had to pay for the tools that they needed to do their jobs. On top of that, there were fines. These are some of the fines the workers Besson interviewed reported. Dirty feet, three pence. Leaving the area around the bench untidy, three pence. I want to clarify
0: that the bench in this situation is like the table or the counter that they're working on. It was not a seat that you sat on.
1: Putting matches that had burned up during work onto the bench, one or two shillings. Leaving matches on the bench while going to get a fresh frame, three pence. Talking, three pence. Being late, The loss of half a day's pay. This was due to not being allowed in to work. And a further fine of five pence. Yeah, so
0: if you were late, you lost your pay until like the break in the day where they would let you in. And then you also had to pay a fine on top of your lost pay. Workers whose matches caught fire while they were working, which happened a lot because these were strike anywhere matches being handled very quickly. They basically watched their pay burn up in front of them because all that work they were doing was now gone.
1: And then if the frames were damaged in the fire, they could be fined or sacked. Bessent also described one girl who had been fined for letting the web that was used to make the matches wrap around a machine. She had done this because her fingers were about to be caught, and she was told, quote, never mind your fingers. Even so, another employee had lost a finger in just such an incident and had been given absolutely no support from the company while she recovered.
0: To add insult to injury and something that could just go into a bad management journal (laughs) as an example of what not to do. Besson also reported that Mr. Theodore Bryant of Bryant and May had decided to show his respect to Prime Minister William Gladstone by putting up a statue of him at the factory. And he docked a shilling from every worker's pay to pay for the statue that would go in their work area. And then he gave them half a day off without pay as a holiday to celebrate the unveiling of the statue they'd had to pay for themselves.
1: want to make grumbly noises. Besant ends her report, quote, such is a bald account of one form of white slavery as it exists in London. With chattel slaves, Mr. Bryant could not have made his huge fortune, for he could not have fed, clothed, and housed them for four shillings a week each, and they would have had a definite money value which would have served as a protection. But who cares for the fate of these white wage slaves? Born in slums... Driven to work while still children, undersized because underfed, oppressed because helpless, flung aside as soon as worked out, who cares if they die or go on the streets, provided only that the Bryant and May shareholders get their 23%, and Mr. Theodore Bryant can erect statues and buy parks. Oh, if we had but a people's Dante to make a special circle in the inferno for those who live on this misery and suck wealth out of the starvation of helpless girls. Failing a poet to hold up their conduct to the execration of posterity, enshrined in deathless verse, let us strive to touch their consciences, i.e. their pockets, and let us at least avoid being partakers of their sins by abstaining from using their commodities. And with that call to action to boycott
0: Bryant and May, we will take a brief word to talk about a sponsor.
1: Products that come in paper based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash
2: Get emotional with me, Radi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry.
0: To get back to our story, unsurprisingly, the Bryant and May Match Company, which was at this point the largest matchmaker in Britain, was not happy at all by Annie Besant's report in the link. They immediately started trying to strong arm their employees into denying that the allegations were true. On July 4th, an anonymous worker wrote a letter to Annie Besant that said, in part, quote, They have been trying to get all the poor girls to say that it is all lies that has been printed and trying to make us sign papers that it is all lies.
1: On July 5th, 1888, about 200 workers walked off the job. Soon, about 1,200 of the Bryant and May employees who made Strike Anywhere matches had gone on strike. And another 300 who worked in the nearby wax match factory joined them. Accounts at the time were all over the place
0: about exactly why they had stopped their work on that particular day. According to one account, they were just tired of all the fines and poor working conditions. In another, two women had been fired for talking to Annie Besant about her investigation. And in a third, it was one young woman who had been fired for not following a foreman's orders to fill a matchbox in a particular way. But her friends at the factory had thought her firing was unfair. And it was
1: this last explanation that Bryant and May tried to claim when talking to the press. And for decades, this strike was positioned mostly as Annie Besant's work, but she wasn't particularly involved in it. In Victorian England, strikes did not have a good track record of leading to reforms for workers. So Besant thought the best course of action would be to press consumers to boycott Bryant and May, which they did. Most of her involvement with the strike itself was through raising funds and spreading the word. Donors included Frederick Engels, and George Bernard Shaw became a clerk for the fundraising effort.
0: The striking workers themselves were really the ones who actually organized the strike and the protests that went along with it. They ultimately formed the Union of Women Matchmakers, which was the largest union of women and girls in Britain. They formed a picket line, they arranged demonstrations and meetings with speakers at Mile End Waste, which was a nearby open area, and Mile End Waste also served as the meeting point to distribute donations to the people who needed them. About 50 workers went directly to Parliament to discuss
1: their grievances directly in person with the MPs. Overall, the striking workers really got a lot of support. One reason was that Annie Besant was quite good at the publicity side of it. She had titled her original article on their working conditions, White Slavery in London, and had closely tied the idea of these women's terrible pay and poor working conditions to the idea of chattel slavery. Britain had abolished slavery more than 50 years prior, so the idea that there was slavery going on right there in the East End really horrified a lot of Victorian London. Even though, to be clear, what was happening at the Match Factory was definitely not chattel slavery. That was just a comparison that she had very articulately drawn. Yeah, that's, and I wanted
0: to point that out because there are definitely cases where people continue to use slavery as like a one-to-one direct parallel with things That were not slavery. So this was terrible. It was not chattel slavery. The striking women also got the support of some of London's skilled trade unions, including the London Trades Council. The LTC had traditionally shunned the needs of unskilled labor. They represented skilled workers. And so pretty much all of the unskilled labor uh, in Britain, they were pretty much on their own. But in this case, it stepped in and tried to negotiate with Bryant and May on behalf of the striking workers. Initially, the factory refused to budge, saying only that if the women
1: returned to work, all but the ringleaders could have their jobs back. But the support was definitely not universal. There is a widely quoted piece from the Times, quote, The pity is that the Match Girls have not been suffered to take their own course, but have been egged on to strike by irresponsible advisers. No effort has been spared by those pests of the modern industrialized world to bring this quarrel to a head.
0: I tried really hard to figure out exactly like this quote comes up again and again Uh and stuff about the uh, about the strike. And I'm like, okay, what is the context of this piece in the Times? This is a quote that somebody said that the Times printed or was like in in an editorial in the Times. Like what actually uh, what what was it? But I did not find the answer to that. Soon, social settlement organization Toynbee Hall was investigating and a boycott was rolling through the consumer market and bad press was putting an extreme amount of pressure on Bryant and May. So after about two weeks, the company started negotiating with the strikers. That negotiation started on July 16th uh, and an agreement was reached the next day. Bryant and May insisting to the press that they surely would have addressed any complaints if only they had known that anyone was unhappy about anything, uh, rehired all of the striking workers.
1: I feel like that's like a model that has happened so many times throughout history when companies are like, we didn't know anybody was miserable in their yeah. incredibly cruel jobs. Don't people love that? They're
0: fine. It's, it's, nobody said anything. It was a problem. They, nobody said it was a problem that we were docking them three pence for dirty feet and not paying them anything and, like, making them run up and down stairs with Strike Anywhere matches. They had no
1: idea they were unhappy. <laughs> Uh, As a result of the negotiations, all of the fines were abolished, as well as all deductions from the workers' pay for the tools they needed to do their job. There were also pay adjustments, and a policy was instituted in which grievances could be taken to the managing director rather than having to go through the foreman. And the union had to stay to advocate for the workers. One last
0: concession that the strikers got was the establishment of a breakfast room. And the breakfast room was enormously important for reasons that we will talk about after another brief sponsor break.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So one of the things that we haven't really talked about in terms of the Bryant and May workers' workplace hazards was risks to their health. In addition to all the things Besant documented in her report, women working in matchstick factories were susceptible to a condition known as Fosse Jaw sometimes described at the time as phosphorus poisoning. And this was because the Strike Anywhere matches that they were making used white phosphorus, sometimes also called yellow phosphorus. And exposure to white phosphorus can cause osteonecrosis, which is the death of bone tissue.
0: Here are the symptoms of Fosse Jaw. Swelling, tooth pain, swollen gums, swollen cheeks and jaws, tooth decay, decay of the jaw bones, Festering sores that expose the decaying bone. Necrotic gangrenous tissue in the face and jaw. And death up to 20% of the time.
1: Bryant and May were, in fact, using half of all the yellow phosphorus in the entire matchmaking industry. And this was a departure from its original business plan, which was to use red phosphorus, which does not cause osteonecrosis, to make those strike-on-the-box matches. These were more expensive, which made strike-anywhere matches much more popular.
0: Often, workers who found themselves displaying the early symptoms of this condition would try to hide it, because they knew that the factory, trying to protect its own interests, would fire them if it found
1: out that they were sick. One of the reasons that a separate space for food and eating was so important to the strike negotiations was that without one, Bryant and May workers had to bring their meals with them, keep them next to their work area, and then sometimes eat at their work benches. Eating in the working area, with the food having also been stored there in the working area, increased their phosphorus exposure dramatically. Another thing we haven't talked about, which is a total
0: surprise to me to learn, is that William Bryant and Francis May, founders of Bryant and May Match Company, uh, were Quakers. And based on literally any other time we have ever talked about Quakers in the podcast ever, this might come as a surprise to people. They had founded the business in 1850, and in 1863, the Commission on the Employment of Children in Industry investigated their business and found it to be, quote, a very nicely conducted place.
1: In 1861, though, Wilberforce Bryant, William Bryant's oldest son, became the general manager there. He wanted to expand the business as much as possible over the objections of Francis May. The younger Bryant forced May out in 1875, following the threat of a lawsuit that May was afraid would tarnish the reputation of the Quaker religion.
0: Obviously, May's quiet departure from the company did not have the effect he was hoping for at all, because without his more tempering influence, the sons of William Bryant took the business in a very different and a much more exploitive direction. A lot of the pay and working conditions that the striking workers were advocating to change had actually been illegal for years following the uh, passage of the Factory Acts in Britain.
1: For a couple of years after the strike, Bryant and May tried to restore its reputation as being a socially minded employer, as was expected of a Quaker business. It took a more fair, but perhaps somewhat paternal approach to its workers. It also made charitable contributions to organizations that would benefit the people who worked there, who continued to be quite poor. Soon, the press were describing Bryant and May as a model employer, offering jobs to British workers and looking after the poor ladies who worked there.
0: Yeah, they were doing things like uh, donating lots of food to the soup kitchens, where the people who worked for them ate from time to time because they weren't being paid enough to buy food elsewhere. Uh, it's a little unclear whether, uh, whether the Bryant sons continued to identify as quakers or not i found contradictory uh evidence on that but regardless this more philanthropic but sometimes definitely paternalistic way of running their business did not last the star reported a case of fossy jaw at the factory in 1892 a subsequent investigation found numerous safety issues with how phosphorus was being handled there and then, ten years after the strike, Bryant and may appeared in the in court following the death of one of their workers from phosphorus poisoning and It was revealed that the factory had seventeen unreported cases of phosphorus. Poisoning which by law had to be reported to health authorities whenever they occurred. Bryant and May had not only failed to report these cases, but had also actively concealed the fact that they had even happened. And six people had died. They were fined 25 pounds, nine shillings. I laugh out of sadness because that does not sound like a lot of money, even in late 19th century dollars. Uh, the company ultimately had to merge with other matchmakers to stay afloat because their reputation could not
1: really recover. And this strike of 1888 led to increased awareness of the dangers of working with yellow phosphorus and a push to ban its use. In 1891, the Salvation Army opened a competing match factory using only red phosphorus and paid double what Bryant and May did. Bryant and May stopped
0: using yellow phosphorus in 1901. The International Association of Labor Legislation began advocating a global ban on yellow phosphorus and matchmaking in the early 1900s as well. An international agreement was signed in 1908, and Britain banned the import, sale, or manufacture of white phosphorus matches in 1910. It's... The... Strike anywhere matches seem incredibly dangerous to me, yeah,, uh, and so it, it like it surprised me as I was reading this that like that people favored the cheapness of the strike anywhere matches over the safety of a match that
1: does not just light on fire against anything with the most minor friction, right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this strike also had a huge influence on organized labor in Britain. Following the success of the matchworker strike, there was a move toward unionizing, among other unskilled labor, all across the nation. It grew into the new unionism movement, and as we alluded to earlier, it eventually led to the establishment of the Independent Labor Party.
0: Yeah, prior to this, uh, as we said earlier, like not, strikes hadn't traditionally been very successful in getting uh, workers uh changes in their working environment in the time right around this and this the success of this strike shifted that a little bit um and the the idea of unskilled labor having a union be- became a much bigger deal uh because before that most of the unions were about more skilled trades uh, and uh the the people who were working in unskilled jobs a lot of times with basically no protections uh weren't really seen as being worthy of, of being in a union and that changed after this
1: point. Whew. Yeah. Is your listener male peppy this time around? It's pretty peppy, yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs>
0: Annie Besant was also a really interesting person and she went on to do other things completely unrelated to this strike. And originally, as I started researching this article or this uh, podcast was going to be a lot more about her. And then I realized that it's a really a big misperception that the strike was all her doing. Right. Um, a lot of the writing about the strike for decades was pretty dismissive and judgmental about the women who were striking and sort of made it like they were unruly children who were goaded into a successful strike by the heroic work of Annie besant And that was not true at all. No, they were on it. They, they were organized. Yeah, they really, they they had a whole lot of solidarity and they organized a bunch of stuff and they got things that they were after, which included not being forced to pay for their own work tools to do their work that they were making almost no money for. So anyway, now I'll get to the much more cheery listener mail. <laughs> uh, this listener mail is from Allie. Uh, I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit because, uh, she said that she had written to us really recent, really recently and she's writing again because she just listened to the episode on Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Read. Um, I'm sure so she says, I just had to write in again after yesterday's Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Read episode because guess what? I'm a pirate historian. Yay! And boy, do I feel your pain when it comes to a general history of the pirates. Although my own history with pirates really begins a long time ago when my mom, an anthropologist, and my dad, a marine archaeologist who brought the first emerald up from the shipwreck Atocha, instilled me and my brother with an early love for pirates by teaching us how to say something I'm not going to repeat because it has a word we don't normally say on the show as small children. It is a very piratey saying, though. I'll start with grad school. When I first entered my history program, I had no idea what I wanted to study, which put me way behind the rest of my classmates. At the beginning, a lot of them introduced themselves with either a specific period or a region of interest where I would go, I'm Allie, and I guess I like pirates. <laughs> before, before too long, my wonderful advisor helped me hammer out a primary field with a little more specificity, which ended up being Atlantic piracy from 1500 to 1750 with a focus on British and Spanish perspectives. Perspectives. But it was rough getting there, and part of that is absolutely the fault of a general history. Originally, I had wanted to focus on Atlantic pirates and gender, using Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, and other pirate women as specific examples of the masculine image of pirates but that very quickly proved to be impossible. There really is just not enough evidence of Reed and Bonnie to do anything with them in a scholarly fashion, or at least nothing new, because plenty of scholars, uh, Marcus Redeker is first to come to mind, have tried. They always end up being these kind of weird, nebulous examples that you can only talk about theoretically. So they end up being much more interesting and in almost a fictional sense than a real one. I had to abandon gender and pirates pretty quickly. Uh, though that remains a facet of piracy that I am still very interested in. Uh, and so then Allie goes on, uh, to recommend as a future episode topic, a, a podcast on Captain William Kidd. Um, because the, I'm going to read this bit in the end. I focused on the. Fine line between pirates and privateers using Captain William Kidd as a primary example. Kidd is also in a general history in a much romanticized fashion. And like pretty much everybody who studies pirates, my thesis had to include Johnson's book as more of a reference than a real source. In my bibliography, a general history is even attributed to Daniel Defoe simply because the published version that I had in my personal library listed him as the author and no one else. My advisor and I went back and forth a lot on that point, And I think I mentioned somewhere that a general history probably wasn't written by Defoe. But all in all, that book is sometimes more trouble than it's worth as a scholarly source. It's absolutely responsible for the world's fascination and romanticization of pirates. But its existence makes it twice as hard to verify the facts of piracy because so much of it is based in history that is then embellished beyond recognition. It's a pain, but unfortunately, we can't ignore it either. Thankfully for me, kids' life and death are well-documented elsewhere. And if you want to put another pirate on your suggestions, I highly recommend him, if only for his trial transcripts, which at times are unintentionally hilarious because he continuously interrupts the officials and they hate it. I love these transcripts because documents from pirates themselves simply do not exist. So we pirate historians have to take what we can get from official documents that frequently twist pirates words to suit their own needs. See the last dying speeches of pirates and other criminals published on broadsides. It's pretty rare to see any personality from a pirate in historical documents that isn't a barbaric profanity spewing monster. But kids' personality is so clear in the transcripts that it's pretty remarkable. If you're interested, they happen to be online. So they're well worth a read. Uh, anyway, this coverage pretty significantly from Bonnie and Reed, so I guess I'll end this note with a thank you. Thank you for tackling a, a podcast what I couldn't in thesis, and thank you for reminding me why I studied pirates in the first place. I was pretty pirated out by the time I finished grad school, but listening to yesterday's episode reignited my love for these disruptive, romanticized rebels of the sea Pirate history is a pretty small niche in a wider history of the Atlantic and the Caribbean, but I'm glad part of me knew that's what I wanted to study before the rest of me did. Pirates are pretty great. Thanks again for all you do. Allie, thank you so much, Allie, for uh, reading this or for sending us this letter. Yes, Number one, it's great. Number two, uh, past hosts already did a podcast on Captain William Kidd, which uh, robs me of the chance to read their hilarious uh court transcripts. Online, uh, but I might read them anyway for fun someday when I have time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that is one that past hosts tackled already. But we will put the link to them in our show notes, so other people can read them too. Thank you again so much, Allie. It was so good, and uh, actually kind of validating <laughs> to hear from a pirate historian. Yeah. Uh, that that our our perception of a general history of the pirates is pretty right on the money in terms of scholarship. So. If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStepWorks.com. We're also on Facebook. Uh, well, let me do this the way Holly does it. If you want to come find us on social media, Missed in History is our name. That is our name on Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and Instagram. And it, I might have missed another one, but it's Mist in History pretty much everywhere. And the only thing that is different from Mist in History is our email address, which is History Podcast at com, because that was our address from way before. <laughs> <laughs> You, uh, you can come to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com, find all kinds of stuff about all kinds of fascinating information. And then you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find show notes, uh, to all of our episodes. I will put the links to these, uh, these tra- trial transcripts, <laughs> William Kidd, in there. Uh, so you can do all that, and a whole lot more, at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to next question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever
0: you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire.
2: If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme.
0: Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side,
1: a new kind of daily podcast
2: from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me,
0: Simone Boyce.